0: Good morning. Uh, As you saw uh, on the video there, we're gonna spend seven weeks looking at specifically the seven miracles, just the seven that John records in his gospel. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. John just records seven of them. There are 34 miracles recorded over the four gospels, 34 different miracles that excludes the virgin birth and the resurrection. Well, there are 34 miracles that Jesus performs. And John, inspired by God, just wants to highlight, point to seven. And there's a reason for that. We know the number seven and the divinity of the number words of the seven number. But every single one of these miracles, it's seven miracles that are seven signs of who Jesus really is. It reveals more about who he really is. It's to get to a spot where unmistakably, Jesus is not just some prophet, some good teacher. Jesus is divine, the son of God. Jesus is God. And what he demonstrates through these miracles is important. But if all you discover over the next seven weeks is this is what Jesus did to prove who he was, we've missed it. We want to know what he did to prove who he is, but there's a reality of what he did, he still does. And what he, who he is, he still can. And there's something very powerful, but let me give the warning. It was in the video there for You, you may have seen the text. This series is not about you seeking miracles. It's about you seeking Jesus. You've got to sit there. If you just want to chase a miracle instead of chasing Jesus, you'll miss so much. If everything's dependent on an outcome we want, there's a problem. But if you follow Jesus long enough, close enough, he will enable you to see the miraculous all around. All around. But that's not to put down the reality that he still can do the miraculous. Some of you are thinking, I'm not so sure. Let me just go with this before I dive into today's miracle. Is God able to do immeasurably more than we could think or imagine? According to the scripture, absolutely yes. Can God bring a breakthrough to a situation that seems impossible? Yes, he can. But why is it we don't choose to walk by that level of faith a lot. I wanted to go there because if we just talk about all these miracles and some of you are like, yeah, not so sure. Number one, there are, there are really two reasons. Number one reason is skepticism. And you've reason to be a skeptic. The reason to be a skeptic is sometimes your modern world has gone Yeah, but we've got so much intellect now, we've got so much research now, we've got so much history to look back at it, we've got so much science that actually, I don't want to credit God with that because it's just unknown biology. I don't want to credit God with that because it was just a coincidence. I don't want to credit God with that because it could happen to anybody. And so we get into this, but my mind has to wrap its head around it. And if I have an answer to that situation that doesn't need God, then it's not a miracle. We have that. In addition to all of that, with that skepticism, some of you are followers of Jesus. And if we're honest, you call discernment skepticism. There's a difference between discernment and skepticism. Skepticism is rooted in disbelief. I just don't believe it. Discernment is, I believe you, God, and now through the filter of your word and the Holy Spirit, reveal. But it's a posture of faith, belief first, whereas skepticism is disbelief. Nah, I don't believe it until. Just be on God, but be honest with that. So skepticism is the first thing that makes you struggle to walk by faith. And you may have reason for it. Hey, don't forget, we've had enough Christian charlatans out there to, you know, go on TV and just give this amount of money and you'll get a healing and we'll do all this. There's been enough people who've abused that situation to make you go, ah, not so sure. The second area, and this is the one most prevalent when it comes to the miraculous, is disappointment. You have just had too much disappointment in your life to believe and trust that anymore. You've prayed for a miracle and it did not happen. You have longed for, you have seen and you've just gone, and just disappointment. Disappointment is a form of pain that you don't want to choose to receive again. So you go on the self-preservation mode, which makes sense Because if I put myself out there and I have a hope out there and I dive in out there and it does not happen, that level of disappointment is so painful that I don't want to go there. Instinctively, human beings, I touch something red hot, I don't touch it again. Ow, I'm not going to do that. It's a human instinct. But just be prepared. Your skepticism and your disappointment may be getting in the way of your trusting in Jesus And there's something we need to step into this season as we go through these. Let me just give a scripture that is at the end of John's gospel. This is important to know why Jesus does these miracles. He says this in verse 30 of chapter 20. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. He did more. But... These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You have got to acknowledge the miraculous all around you only by God, and it starts with this. The number one most significant, fully available miracle in the world is the gift of salvation. That's a miracle because you didn't earn it. You can't deserve it. It makes no sense whatsoever. Nobody else can give you forgiveness and restoration and redemption and eternity assured. Nobody can bring this life and life in all its fullness. Nobody can turn your darkness into light. No one can turn your mourning into dancing. The reality of the salvation gift is it is a miracle. And so when he says that by believing in him, you may have life and step into the fullness of life, you've got to believe and trust in Jesus who is able to do immeasurably more you can even imagine because that is the doorway into a fullness of life. So here we are, dive in, rapid, here we go. The first sign, the first miracle that is recorded in John's gospel. Wow, it's important. I seriously, and I said this at the nine o'clock. At one point, I thought, Do I have to rethink this series and spend seven weeks on this one miracle? Because as I was reading, I was going, Well, that's big, and that's significant, and that's significant, and that's significant. The reality is, I don't want to give it you all. I want to make you want more. And I have an appetite for this. So we're going to lean in to John chapter 2, 1 through 11. The first couple of verses, I'll probably pause a few times, probably, just to give glimpses of a bit more, and then we're going to journey through it all and engage in a way that I trust is not just comforting to your soul, but it'll present itself to you with an opportunity today. We're going to share communion at right near the end of my message. I won't be done when we share it. There's more, but we're going to share it. I say that to you now. I want you to have the end in mind because everything about this miracle is pointing to this. It's pointing there. Here we go. John chapter two, starting at verse one. On the third day, stop it, stop it, stop it. Why do we have to tell us which day it is? On the third day, dashboard lights are flashing. It's not just any day. He's revealing something about this. We know it's the third day. What happens on the third day? The amount of times and number three, number of completion. But the third day, we know Jesus rises on the third day. There's so much that takes place on the third day. And here's his first miracle. And he wants us to know that on the third Third day, he's going to restore something here. He's going to make something that was dead come alive again. He's going to make something that looked like it was all over to become really not all over. He's doing so much on the third day. Move on, or we're not going to get through this. On the third day, a wedding. Why do we need to know it's a wedding? From the very beginning of the scriptures all the way to the end, Genesis and Revelation. I'll miss out the middle because we haven't got time. In the beginning, God created man and woman and they became one flesh. It is right that a man should leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. There's something imagery of completion and unity going on and we know it's broken. Then we have the imagery of Jesus being the bridegroom who is gonna return for his bride, us, the church. The weddings and marriage is supernatural, is divine. Do you see why the enemy attacks it so strongly? Hugely, it's massive. Then you get in Revelation, I think it's chapter 19, there'll be this wedding feast of the Lamb. Coming up, there's gonna be a wedding feast, wedding beginning, wedding end, everything wedding. Jesus steps in day one to start the clock ticking on his destiny and on the third day, it just so happens he's at a wedding. Who's getting married? We don't know. If it was my wedding, I'd be like, well, thanks. I would have liked to have been mentioned in the Bible. Five out of the seven miracles that Jesus performed in John's gospel, the people on the receiving end and partaking in it are nameless. Because the Lord wants us to know that if you name them, it defines it and it encapsulates it just with that person. But if they are nameless, he is saying he does this and it's open for all. Doesn't confine it. So here he is on the third day. (laughs) A wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Not Jerusalem. It's just Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. That's important. Who else is there? Oh, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. There's the scene set. It's a wedding. And we know historically weddings went on for days in those cultures, but they get invited and on the third day, there they are. Uh, we'll carry on. Verse three. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I'll get into that in a minute. Let's just read through the whole text. though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. Thus he revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him, just a quick note here. So, Jesus' first miracle is not saving someone's life. I mean, why not go out big from the get go? It's not healing somebody of an illness or a sickness, it's not bringing a cultural breakthrough in the city, it's saving faith. It's stepping into somebody who is about to encounter unbelievable guilt and shame in that culture. It's stepping into a situation that would bring intense embarrassment. It's stepping into something that would allow a wedding or a marriage to feel stolen and robbed and affected forever that the legacy of that marriage and that wedding would go on, Jesus is revealing he's not just interested in healing as we see it or in bringing the dead back to life. There is nothing too small for him, nothing too big, nothing too small, and it matters His value on marriage matters. His value on legacy matters. It's not random that this is where Jesus starts to declare his glory. Moving on, verse three to five. Let's look at this now. They're at the wedding. Here it is, we know who's there. And then it says this, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, we know John is not putting in together this full conversation. All he's putting together inspired by God is what he thinks he has to put together. There's not a lot here, but there's enough. There's enough. Mary is at the wedding and she discovers they've got no more wine. Did everybody know this? Or just some people know this, not so sure. What's going on? But she notices it. So what does Mary do when she notices there's a problem? There's a problem. And it's a really big problem. In fact, this is a huge problem. And without playing on words here, Mary goes to Jesus with the problem. What do you do with your problems? Can we be honest? I would confess before you, and you're all probably the same, I'm going to navigate every possible fix-it plan that I can muster up, and only when I am at the end of my rope and there seems no way out, will I take it to Jesus. What if I may have a plan to fix a situation, but Jesus has a better plan? What if I may be able to fix it, but it bypasses the divine and the supernatural that Jesus could play in that problem. Step number one, Mary brings a big problem, but she brings it to Jesus. There is interaction. There is interaction. Many scholars will believe is just still a part of it and she knows the extent of how this is significant. Why did they run out of wine? Who knew? Was there just not enough or were there just heavy drinkers? What was going on? Was some lost? Was some spilt? What kind of was going on? I mean, did the bride know that the groom had blown it? Like, seriously, dude, you had one job. And we're out. Great. Good start. Way to go, provider. Being sarcastic, but all these things could be taking place. The shame and the guilt and the whole thing that's going on there is immense. There's a problem. And Jesus responds. Dear woman, why do you involve me? English is not good here. You may think it's a bit impersonal, like, like dear woman. If we were to get a, some kind of a literal translation here, it is intensely personal what Jesus is saying to me when he says, dear woman, it's personal. It, it's, it, it's affectionate. It's not woman. Like, dear woman, what is so? Why are you bringing the problem to me? Like, why are you involving me with that? Not my fault, but he's not. He's hearing her problem. He's hearing it and he's engaging in it. Dear woman, why do you involve me? And there's clearly gonna be an interaction that we don't have in the scriptures. Why do you involve me? And he says, my time has not yet come or has it? It's almost like Mary gives a quick, Jesus. Here's the problem. What do you think? What do we do? Here's what we do now. The moment Jesus reveals his power and glory for the first time, he knows he starts the clock ticking that leads him to Calvary. He knows this will start the clock. The moment he reveals his glory for the first time, it starts a clock. This is a big moment. And in this, what seems to be just a social mishap, Jesus' destiny moves forward. In what just seems to be a, mm, a bad day, His destiny steps in. And then all we know, after that interaction, at some point, Mary then goes to the servants and goes, "Do do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Does she know what he's going to say? I don't believe she does. Just trust him. Trust him. Let me bring that home. Jesus has been saying to you, Do you trust me? Do you trust me? And are we able to say, I'll do whatever you say? And without delay, I'll do whatever you say. Yeah, but Jesus, I think I can do this one. I'm good. I'm very guilty of this. I'll fix it, I'll, rest- I'll do what I can do first. Do whatever he tells you. I mean, Jesus could have said, servants, come here. Go get a ton of cash. Buy some more wine. You know? Maybe, if that was the case, though, maybe Mary was thinking that. I mean, she's a mom. She's there in the, she's got hosting instincts. We can fix this, Jesus. We can fix it. This is what we need to do. We can fix it. I know a guy, and we can go do it. We saw that, but but no. Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Now, let's move on. It simply says this in verse 6 Nearby stood six stone water jars, and we had told what kind? The kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Of all the water jars, Jesus symbolically, the ones that you have to do to wash and cleanse yourself before going into worship, the ones you have to do to cleanse and wash yourself before approaching God in prayer, the ones that can make you right before God and cleanse you, these are the ones. It's loaded with imagery. So full. The very water jars that were there. You could say that it didn't even need to turn it into wine. Guys, instead of you just just washing yourselves outwardly, take it in, drink of me, and all cleansing could be, all of those things could be there, but he picks these water jars. Let's not get into the dimensions. All you need to know is it's a lot. It's a very, 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 very large amount of wine that's about to arrive at the wedding. So this is what he does, but it's just water. Stopped about this. Thought about this water. I'm not a scientist, but I little I know it's probably dangerous. Little I know is this: H2O. Way to go, Des, knowing my scientific compounds. H2O. Two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. That's it. One of the most simplest compounds on the planet, if not the. Just water. 71% of the planet is covered in it. 71% of this planet is covered in water. 71%. Wow. The average human, 65% of your body is made up of water. The majority. We're really simple, aren't we? We're just like 65%. It's just water. Water, simple, nothing and yet critical. It's mentioned in the beginning in Genesis 1. The Spirit of God was just hovering over the water. Don't get into your baptism talk. That was last week. The significance of it. We're born out of water. Water. The significance, it's simple. And God did this miraculous. You know, the provision of water is miraculous. Miraculous. We we just take it for granted because we can go get it everywhere around us. We can open different taps and faucets and buy bottles. We can access it. The value of water is only there for you to know when you're dehydrated. If you've been dehydrated, ever been dehydrated? The reality is about dehydration is you can live without food for a very long time. You can't live without water that long. Even they said the most experienced of survival experts when the conditions are all perfect can still only survive without water for 10 to 12 days. But you're not Bear Grylls, so you can't do that. The reality is for most of us, it's a lot less than that. And especially with the climate that you may be in. So you know what it's like to be low on water. And if you've ever had that, water is the most unbelievable, refreshing thing when you need it. You see, you can be hungry and that'll just put you in a bad mood. You can be thirsty and that could threaten your life. Why am I leaning into this just water thing? I think in life when it comes to miraculous we're missing the miraculous that God's already given us. When's the last time we thanked God for good old water? Like, wow. Like, wow. So God steps in. Jesus is there. Just water. Let's just start with water and see what he can do with that. If my God can bring transformation with just H2O, what else can he do? He doesn't need much, is what he's saying. It's not like there was these big buckets of grapes and Jesus fast forwarded the fermentation process. That could have been still a miracle, yeah? We don't have to go through weeks and months and years of it, the grapes being turned into Wine, still great, but no, no, I'm gonna take the most simple, the most basic that could possibly be and make it different. Verse seven, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they were already, there was a sum in. Had they already been using the water to cleanse them before the wedding a couple of days before, probably all these things taking place. Now he says, now fill them with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Here's what I got here. Of all the people, all the support cast in this incredible story, it's just servants. These are the only people who actually see the miracle. Everybody else sees the outcome. They're the ones who, we filled it with water. They're the ones who get the carafts and go, What? Just the servants, nobody else. Nobody else. Don't you dare think God can't use you. Don't you dare think you're underqualified. He always picks the unqualified. Don't you dare think you're too full of shame, too full of guilt. Don't you dare think that God can't use you in his master plan of revealing his glory. The problem is you are saying, I'm not worthy of being used by him, but it is by his grace you've been saved through faith. Stop doing that. These guys were the first guys to see the first miracle and they're just servants with no names. It's amazing. It's amazing. Okay, going too deep. Here we go. Can we just be honest though? Big, huge jar of water, fine line. It's hard to believe. Come on now. It's hard to believe, isn't it? It's hard to believe. Try and rationalize something and a bit of switcheroo took place, or it's just hard to believe. It's hard to get your head around. Really hard. Well, as we go on on the weeks, it gets progressively more impossible. Just to let you know. The miracles that Jesus performs, there is definitely a crescendo. Because number seven is a guy's been dead for four days and he calls him out of the tomb. Water into wine is elementary compared to a dead person four days coming back to life. So here it is, but it's just hard to believe. So I was thinking about this. So, what about Lego? I don't play with you because this is important. I want to remind you of how finite your brain is. I just want to do something that in my brain I went, wow. To realize that even in the human, it's mind blowing. So, how much more can God do? And I want to unlock this. And here's the the Lego kind of a deal. So Ole Kirk Christiansen, 1932 Danish toy maker, was this guy who invented Lego. Lego is two Danish words, which means play well. Now, as a company, interesting with this in mind, it's only the best is good enough, is their motto for Lego. Huh. Anyway, that's irrelevant. So here we have it. Lego. Who'd have thought in 1932 that this guy, just a toy maker, here we go, The Lego will be what it is right now as a company. Like it's everywhere. And it's not just little building blocks for kids to play. Full-on grown adults are making unbelievable things that look incredible. Replicas of whatever made out of Legos. You have Lego land, you have Lego movies, you have Lego video games. You have Lego, it's like, Really? It was just meant to be some blocks to build some things and be creative. Now, all of this is what I'm gonna point to right now to help blow your mind because it blew my mind. I once heard Mark Batterson tell a story about he was invited, he was in Las Vegas, this gathering of entrepreneurs, and one of the grand geniuses behind Lego in modern days came and wanted to bring an illustration. So he gave all these guys in the room six Lego blocks. Six Lego blocks. And he said to them, so here they are. And he said, okay, I want you to estimate how many unique combinations, permutations of these six six Lego bricks are possible. How many? How many? There's just six. Give me a number of how many unique combinations you think are possible. And so Mark Madison says, I knew it was gonna be way more than I thought. And I didn't wanna look ridiculous. He said, instinctively, I was thinking, there's just six. Oh, it's hundreds. It is hundreds, definitely hundreds. I don't really know, but maybe it's thousands. So he put a few thousand down. I can't remember what he, was. he put a few thousand down, is his answer. And he said, the good news is he was like everybody else, so far short, it was embarrassing. There's just six Lego. Blocks, I'm going here because of your mind. You've looked at it and gone water to wine. It's just really, and here's the number. I wrote this down, okay? The total number of possible combinations, permutations of these six Lego bricks is this. 915,103,765. Now that's a number I can't get my head around anyway. I'm like, what? Just six? Nine. Nine hundred and fifteen million. One hundred and three thousand seven hundred and sixty five? Just. Blah, with just six blocks. Just six. Jars of water. The God, the creator of the universe and me and you could turn into wine. Stop trying to, oh, I understand it all. I get my head around it. You'll look as dumb as trying to think that six Lego bricks are a few thousand combinations and you think you're smart. He said nobody was even near The number, not even close. So, you bring to Jesus a problem, just add water and see what the Lord can do. See what the Lord can do. Verse 9. So, these guys, these servants, They fill it to the brim, they draw some out. They've got their nice carafts, beautifully created, full of the finest of wine. So they did so, verse nine, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. They knew, he didn't. He's just like, oh, okay, good. He's not even realizing he's encountering a miracle. It's like, oh, okay. Not even realizing he's encountering a miracle. How many of you are going through life not even realizing you're encountering a miracle? And then he says this. Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first. Good impression. This is going to be a great wedding. Nice. Woo. Impressive. We're in for a good few days. Nice. Well done. So good. And the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink, makes complete sense. At that point, they don't care. It makes complete sense. But You have saved the best till now. He pulls the bridegroom aside and tells him this. This bridegroom was about to enter or had already entered the shame and the guilt and the fear of all that was in front of him. And he's gone from this is the worst day to this is blowing my mind. The greatest possible. The legacy is immense. And he feels it. And Jesus does not do this. Hey, Master Banquet. It wasn't him, it was me. He doesn't. Jesus sees the restoration. The healing, the love expression on this guy. By grace. It's grace. The guy doesn't deserve it. He's not earned it. It's grace. He's received it. What seemed impossible, he's received it. His identity is changed. The wedding is changed. The impact is changed. The servants are changed. There's transformation everywhere. And at no point does Jesus step in and go, hey, just so you know, everybody, I did that. No. No, we didn't. It's just beautiful. But you have saved the best. Till now, That master banquet guy did say something important now. You saved the best till now. The best? Jesus, miracle one, at a wedding, on the third day, steps in and he's saving the best. All throughout human history, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. All through human history, people were repenting to God, making sacrifices to God, being ceremonially washed so they could become before a holy God because they were not perfect and they were sinful people and they were wanting to honour God in that way. All throughout, there was a separation that the sin, the wages of sin was Death, all of that was a reality. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That was a reality. And now Jesus stepping into his destiny going, oh, my father from heaven has sent his best. For God so loved the world that he gave his best. The one and only son. And when the master of the banquet, there's interpretation, says, but you have saved the best Till now, the clock starts. And Jesus steps into what we now know is the miracle of miracles and the transformation beyond beyond what we could possibly imagine. So, water was turned into wine. And from that day, Jesus starts the journey where wine is turned into blood. We then have the journey from wine into blood. The first miracle foreshadows the last. The first miracle foreshadows the last. The first miracle at a wedding. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life for her. Of all languages, the first miracle, water into wine. Wine into blood. Mind-blowing. I, wrote, I, have, I write quotes down from different people at different times. I don't know who said this. And it says this, On the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus turned an ordinary cup of wine into a bottomless glass of grace. I just sat with it. I thought, yeah, there's a celebration meal at the Passover. We call it the last supper because we know it was his last supper now. And he's there before with his guys and he's saying, okay, guys, take this cup. They see this cup, see this cup. It's my blood is gonna be poured out for you for the payment and sacrifice of your sin. And guess what? It's gonna be bottomless. It's gonna go for you. And your generation after you and the generations after you and the generations to come. The atoning blood of Jesus never runs out. It is a bottomless glass of grace. And it was triggered at that first miracle. And today we get to drink it. We get to drink it today. A bottomless glass of grace. God made him who had no sin. Jesus, to become sin for us, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. We have nothing. We've run out of wine. Jesus makes a way where there seems to be no way, where there seems to be no way. I'm not finished, there's a little bit more, but we're gonna celebrate communion right now. This is how we're gonna do this. During this next song, whenever you're ready, exit your row to your left and just come on down. We've got tables in the middle, three set up, and we've got another three down here, okay? Exit from your left and then come into the right. It's just to stop, stop collisions, all right? That's right, but whenever you're ready, come down. And be reminded that what Jesus did at that wedding, he is offering to you. He is offering to you his grace, his power, his majesty, his mercy, his provision, his joy, his restoration, removal of shame and guilt and struggle and humiliation. He is offering you that. So I'm gonna pray for us. Whenever you're ready, come get the elements. And then when you go back to your seat, you take them when you're ready, okay? You take them when you're ready. The, there's two cups. The bread is in the second cup underneath, just so you know, um, for you to do that. So let me start by praying. And we sing the song, Miracle. And you need to know that you can see a miracle. The chorus of this song says, I see a miracle in an empty grave. The one we thought was dead is now alive again. Just enter in, spend time in it, thanking Him, celebrating. King Jesus. Pause. If you can, put your hands out like this if you want to. I'm not going to make you do it. Postures matter. Biblically, they matter. The postures matter. King Jesus, I give my life to you afresh today. I say thank you for all that you've given me and may all that I have be for you. Thank you, Lord God, that you loved us so much. You were prepared to make a way where no other could make a way. I thank you for the cross. I thank you that when you shed your blood, it is finished. You were this atoning sacrifice, a payment of sin once and for all. That you became sin, that we might become righteous. Thank you, Jesus. We partake in this celebration now that you ordain for us to do, to remember your love, your grace, your mercy, your sacrifice for us, your body and your blood. And we declare this into the spiritual realm that my King did this for me and my King is alive. He has redeemed me, restored me, forgiven me, and given me salvation. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.